The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. From studies in John chapter 1, the prologue of the Gospel of John, which focuses on the Word of God, this evening looking at the Word, the eternal Word, becoming flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. The story of the prince and the pauper was one that I always enjoyed as a boy. The part that especially intrigued me was the experience of the prince, dressed in common garb and clothing, when he went out and mingled with the common folk. And as he did various things and had certain experiences, people would think that they were dealing with an ordinary boy, being completely oblivious to whom he really was. And I always liked that part of the story. Well, in a much greater and certainly far-reaching way, the true story of the coming of Jesus Christ in the Incarnation is the story of the King of Kings, the King of Kings dwelling in heaven coming to dwell among us as one of us. God become man, the God-man. John describes it this way in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word there is actually tabernacled among us. 
reminiscent of the presence of God in the tabernacle, in the presence of the Old Testament people of Israel. Think with me tonight about this incredibly good news of God coming to dwell among us, the eternal word become flesh. Think first who it is who came to dwell among us. Who is Jesus Christ? Who was it that became flesh? Well, he's described in the Gospel of John chapter 1 in a number of verses here. Look with me at just a few that we've heard described. We see in verses 1 and 2 that he is the eternal Word of God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we see him described as the eternal Word of God. Before time began in history, Jesus Christ was and is still the eternal Word. It says in verse 3 that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ was the creator, the triune God who created all things. Jesus participated in the creation of the world. In verse 4, we see that he is the source of true life. He is the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then down in verse 14, where it talks about the word becoming flesh. It says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. You might know the King James, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This uniqueness of the Son of God as the only Son in that sense, begotten, not created or made. And then in verse 15, John bore witness about him when he said, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. And note what he says, Because he was before me. So even though John the Baptist was born before Jesus Christ was, John is saying, John is speaking to the eternal nature of the Messiah. He was before me. And then in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, speaking of the Son, speaking of Jesus Christ, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Statement upon statement upon statement of who Jesus Christ was. So when we think of Bethlehem, when we think of the baby, when we think of the loneliness of it, born in this very poor environment, in a stable, in possibly a cave, and wrapped in swaddling cloths. When we see all the lowliness of it, we must see it in the light of this description in John chapter 1. Think of John writing probably about A.D. 85, decades after Jesus Christ came. John, now as an old man, writing about the Incarnation in a different way than we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and speaking with power about the eternal nature of the Son of God. We would compare it, possibly, as the sun is compared to the moon. 
The moon on a beautiful night has radiance. But we know that the moon is not the origin of that brightness, that light. It's reflective radiance. The origin of the light is from the sun. John the Baptist came to bear witness to the light. John shone brightly, we might say. He declared the word of God. And yet, Jesus Christ was the sun in the sense of the moon and the sun. Or we might say it's comparing an ocean to a swimming pool. Jesus is the ocean compared to any human being. He is the source of life and light, the only true God himself. I think of the, one of the great pictures and photographs from the Hubble telescope a number of years ago when it was launched and for years traveled into outer space and sent back photographs from outer space, billions of miles into space. And some of the photographs it sends back were of our, our, our entire solar system from a distance. And Earth was this tiny blue dot. And you look at a photo like that and you think of the immensity of even our own solar system and our own galaxy among the billions of galaxies out there. And you think every human being who ever lived originated on this earth. We are created beings except for one, Jesus Christ, who existed before he was born on this earth. He is the eternal Son of God. So it's helpful to begin with who Jesus Christ was. But then the second point we see is, why did Jesus Christ come to dwell among us? Why was the Word made flesh? Now that we've seen who He is, we are able to ask why. And we could look at this answer in a twofold way. And to begin with, the problem, the problem that we see in Scripture is our great need. Why did he become flesh? Out of his love, of course, out of his grace, but because there was a great problem that needed to be overcome. This theme of darkness, this theme of rebellion is here, even in John chapter 1, describing the glories and the grace and the light and the truth of who Jesus Christ is. You can't comprehend why Jesus Christ came unless you look at it from the backdrop of the darkness of mankind's sin and fall. We see in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There's this context of darkness. No one ever really feels the need for light unless he's in darkness. Maybe some of you lost your power when Hurricane Sandy came through and, and the nights became pretty dark pretty fast if you didn't have your flashlights out or your candles out or things like that. We were driving through our neighborhood the other night and looking at all the Christmas lights that are already out. And they're all, they're all these lights you see. <clears throat> People have spotlights hooked up under their trees, shining up into the trees and makes a beautiful white light. And of course, all the candles in the windows you see. And it's almost like in Western society, in modern America, <clears throat> we don't have any real sense of darkness as it would have been in the ancient world. We've got electricity everywhere. Maybe when a hurricane knocks out power for days, people in that area get a sense of it because then you're really in the dark. When night comes, you're really in the dark. We kind of like darkness because then all the sparkly lights are out, and it's nice to see and enjoy that, to think of mankind in spiritual darkness. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
He was in the world. Christ was in the world. He came, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Think about what's being described. Think of the nature of mankind's rebellion. You can't read through the history of ancient Israel. You can't read through First and Second Kings with prophets like Elijah and Elisha proclaiming the word of God and in that terrific confrontation with the prophets of Baal when fire descends and destroys the altar and, and everything in it. And you think not long after that, the nation is slipping more deeply into idolatry and sin. And even when a good king comes along, so often there's this refrain, but the high places were not torn down. And you see just the constant darkness and rebellion of human beings living life not submitted to God. Do we find this amazing? We're all pretty used to it. This is the air we breathe. This is the world we live in. You know, most of us who have pets or have had pets know that our dog or our cat know us pretty well, and they know what the routine is when they're about to be fed. You know, and you're about to feed your dog, and they know what's coming. And uh, the idea that a pet knows his master, it's a familiar theme to any pet owner. But the tragic nature of human beings is that we are in darkness. We do not know our master. We do not know and instinctively worship the true God. Yes, there is that light of nature, we would say. Romans 1 talks about it, that we ought to worship the true God so that we are without excuse, but we don't apart from God's grace. Not even his own people were told here. His own people didn't receive him. You think of when Jesus was born, and you think of Herod and the scribes who knew the law and the people of Nazareth. And the whole Christmas Advent story, you see the rejection, the rebellion from the very beginning. So the problem is great. It's our need because of our sin, but the solution gives the answer why Jesus Christ came. Out of his grace, he came to save. His name shall be called Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. Full of grace and truth, verse 14 Jesus, the true light, came to bring his light and life into the world. To such sinners in rebellion, Jesus came to save, to make them children of God. He came to dwell among us so that he might raise us to dwell with God himself by his grace. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice that emphasis on the grace of God in Christ to lift us out of our brokenness and sin. How is a person made right with God? Maybe you've heard this preached Sunday after Sunday. Maybe you're familiar with this, but have you taken it to heart? Maybe the Christmas music is is very familiar as as you hear Silent Night sung. The answer of Scripture is that it's only through the Word made flesh. And you you need to enter into that through faith. The story of Jesus' birth tells us that God has a, a marvelously 
differing way of restoring fallen human beings than we could ever have imagined. You know, maybe we can imagine a lot of things. I remember the first time I heard that there was such a thing as the internet. Someone in, my, in our New Jersey church was printing out songs in a different language for an employee at work. And I thought, how do you, how do, you do that? And I just thought, oh, that's really weird, isn't it? You know, I, and then I remember the first time being at a friend's house and seeing this friend look up cars on the internet. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. How does that work? And he kept going from page to page, and I thought, he better back up sooner. He's going to lose track of how to get back to the start. You know, I just kind of looked at it and thought, and I remember at the time thinking, well, that's really far out, and, you know, I'll never be involved with that. That's too weird. You know, and here we are now. Who would have ever thought 30 years ago that you could look at homes, if you want to buy a home, you know how that is. You can go online and look at the home and do a virtual tour and just kind of walk through the house. How many of you 30 years ago would ever have imagined that? You know, it's just beyond, our, for you young kids, that's nothing new. You were raised with that, but for us old folks, that's, that's really, that was unimaginable. And my point is, could any of us have imagined the incarnation? No, it's beyond us. It is so much not like a human plan. It is so godlike in its origin that Jesus would come to meet our needs by becoming one of us. Well, what should be our response in our third point? What should be our response to God dwelling among us, God becoming flesh? You know the familiar verse, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be born of God, to receive Christ, which means to believe in his name. A right understanding of the incarnation turns us away from self-righteous efforts. If you don't understand the incarnation, if you don't believe in the nature of the incarnation, then your natural direction in any religious way, as you think about heaven or God or how to please God, will be simply a self-righteous attempt to do your best, to somehow earn your way to God. The incarnation smashes at our feet any idea of self-righteousness. We know that it's not possible. Jesus had to come and live a holy life, and keep the law, and die on the cross, and be raised again to bring us to God. And what then is left for us but to receive him through faith, to trust in his work, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. To receive him, verse 12, means to kneel before him as your Lord and King, to entrust your very life to him, in faith to rest on him to trust him to save you from your sins and to give you the gift of eternal life. Why is it that so often people can understand the Christmas story and yet to refuse to believe and to bow and to receive Jesus Christ? It's not always just a problem of understanding It's possible to understand these things and and to hear what I'm saying about the incarnation and refuse because we still dearly love our sin. In fact, it's not long after this that in John 3, 
after the very familiar John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. After that verse, we read in John's gospel why it is people still refuse him. Because John goes on to say, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the, this, this is the judgment. This is the verse that I want us to see. As John is describing the grace of Jesus Christ, he says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Do you hear what Scripture is saying? It's not merely a matter of intellectual pursuit and understanding. Yes, it involves intellectually understanding the gospel, but the problem goes deeper than that. It involves our hearts, which are given over to idolatry unless God changes our hearts. We need a new heart to trust Jesus Christ. The problem goes very deep. We love the ways of sin. That's at the heart of rejection of Christ. And so I call you tonight to turn to the Lord. If you've never trusted in him, to cry out to him, to give you eyes to see and a heart willing to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And for Christians to receive the comfort of the incarnation in whatever affliction you're experiencing. We see this continual calling to respond by faith to Jesus Christ. He came. He dwelt among us. And that has power to comfort those who are in in any affliction we read in Hebrews 4 because Jesus is able to sympathize with us. He came and he still lives at the Father's right hand, helping and sustaining those who call upon him. I cast about this week for an illustration of incarnation, and I'll close with that. John and Marianne Peyton arrived on the island of Tana in the New Hebrides, which is Vanuatu now. They arrived there in April of 1858. They had come from Scotland to be missionaries to this savage tribe or tribes on the island. There are a number of islands in that area. A nearby island had already largely come to Christ, but now they were seeking to bring the gospel to Tana. And as John Payton describes the islanders and their lifestyle, I want to read a part of it to see how deeply degraded their lives were. Cannibals, so warlike, always warring tribe among tribe, murdering one another regularly. It's almost beyond modern sensibilities. But let me read a part in modern English of his older English autobiography. Hear what he says. And I want to make an application of this to the incarnation. On Tana, he writes, the woman is the slave of the man. She is kept working hard and bears all of the heavier burdens while he walks by her side with musket, club, or spear. If she offends him, he beats or abuses her at will. Such scenes were so common that no one thought of interfering. Even if 
the woman died in his hands, or immediately afterward, neighbors took little notice. And their children were so little cared for that my constant wonder was how any of them survived at all. As soon as they are able to toddle about, they are practically left to care for themselves. As a result, when their parents become old, they show very little affection to them, letting them starve to death or even killing them outright. The girls with their mothers and sisters slave in the village plantations. They maintain all the fences, bear, reburden, and are knocked about by the men and boys. When the great chief, Nuka, became seriously ill, his people sacrificed three women for his recovery. How sad and degraded is the position of the woman where the teaching of Christ is unknown. It is the Christ of the Bible, his spirit entering into humanity that has lifted the woman and made her the helpmate and the friend of man. Leaving all consequences to the, to the disposal of my Lord, I determined to make an unflinching stand against wife beating and widow strangling. Widows were strangled when their husbands died. I pleaded with all who were in power to unite and put down these shocking and disgraceful customs. At length, ten chiefs entered into an agreement not to allow any more beating of wives or strangling of widows and to forbid all common labor on the Lord's day. Alas, except for purposes of war or other wickedness, the influence of the chiefs was comparatively small. He's saying his effort to get the chiefs to unite to stamp this out did not succeed. I just give you a brief glimpse of that. Now, I read that because when we think of that and read an account like that of such a savage and degraded society, we're certainly struck with the service and sacrifice of the early missionaries who went there and exhibited such courage and faith in Christ, and many of them dying in their labor for Christ. But... The only difference compared to Jesus Christ coming to this earth and missionaries going to that island is that it's a much, 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 much smaller step for us as fellow sinners to go to an island like that than for Jesus Christ to come. Do you see my point? We think there's a great gulf between us and our civilized society and people like that but we're all sinners. We all need to be saved by grace. Any kinds of sin done there are in heart form in our lives in some way. But it's a much greater step for Jesus Christ when he came to earth. That gives you a picture, a little glimpse of something of what the incarnation was like for Jesus Christ, who willingly gave up his position in glory. He retained his Godheadness. He remained God. He took on flesh, and he became man. Let us stand in awe at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice in this very good news to the praise of his name. Amen.